Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you've given us your word, that we have it. We have it written down. We can hold it in our hands. We can read it from the pulpit. And by your grace and mercy, we will be able to receive it today in clarity and truth. I ask, Father, that you would show us this great gospel message that we, your people, the church, have been given. This message of salvation by grace through faith to all who repent and believe and of justice and judgment for all who refuse Christ. I ask, Lord, that you would give us perspective, knowing that in our proclaiming this message that we will be shamed and dishonored by this world, we will be persecuted, and many will be put to death. But I ask in light of this persecution, Father, you would show us that great day of vindication That day when Christ returns and He raises us from the dead and He brings us into Your presence and He gives honor to those who are so dishonored here on earth. Father, as we hear this message from Revelation chapter 11, I pray that our hearts would rightly go out this morning to all of our brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted and some being put to death even this hour that as we enjoy the great privilege of being able to gather here freely to exposit your word and to worship you in spirit and truth that we have so many in the church that cannot. So give us hearts, Father, to pray for them, to support them, to minister to them. And and I would ask, Father, that you would give us a desire in your spirit to model them. They are persecuted for their faithful proclamation. I pray that we too would faithfully proclaim Christ to all those in our mission field. And then in so doing, Father, if persecution comes, knowing that you will on that day honor us. Father, we ask for courage in your spirit. We ask for strength in your spirit to do that which most of us here know we are supposed to do. So strike out all cowardice. Give us clarity. Loosen our tongues and cause us to proclaim, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we we have made it halfway through the book of Revelation. We are officially at the halfway mark. So if I haven't lost you yet, I'm very, very thankful. Um, That in and of itself is no small task. We are thankful the Spirit has kept us, I think, on track. Um, And then we get to chapter 11, verses 3 through 14, and you think, oh, I don't have any idea what Pastor Kirk just read Um, Hopefully, we'll have clarity there as well. Um, If you were here with us last week, Paul, Paul, John, John's in in a literary interlude, and that's a a piece of writing that gives us more details between two events. So we're in between trumpet number six and trumpet number seven. And last week, in the beginning of this interlude, we heard John receive this vision about this message he's supposed to proclaim. This very difficult, if you remember, a bittersweet message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ to all who what? Who repent and believe and judgment and justice to all those who reject the message. And that's the message that John had been given to write down in the book and so we have it, praise God. And we'll see here as we continue in this interlude, verses 3 through 14, before we get to the seventh trumpet next week, we we hear now that that message has been given to the church. And therefore, we receive the apostolic message from John to the church, and we too now are being called to proclaim it to the world. Now, some have argued that verses 3 through 14 
And Revelation 11 are the most contested, most difficult verses in the entire book. And if that's true, that's quite a statement because the book itself is not terribly easy. Um, I will submit to you humbly that it's more straightforward than, than we think, um, that it's not as difficult as we think. And I say that with all humility because of the men who have come before me who have preached otherwise. But I, I believe that there's a very simple message here in Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 to 14. And that is this, that we have this very difficult message to proclaim. It is a powerful message empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's given to the church. I believe that when we proclaim that, we will be persecuted and some put to death by the world because we are proclaiming that message. And then at the end of this passage, we'll see that God will vindicate his people, that he will raise us up bodily, he will bring us into his presence, and he will judge those who reject it. I think that's what the whole chapter um, is talking about. So if I, again, if I burst your, your prophetic, fantastic Apache helicopter expectations of this, um, well, I'm not sorry. I want to preach to you what I think the Word of God says. So um, all this is taking place right now. Right? We, we are in the time between Jesus' ascension and his return. So all this is, these are real-time events. Now, if that's true, then we want, to, we want to know how we, Christ Community Church, how can we be faithful proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the full gospel of salvation and judgment? How can we be faithful to that in the midst of a culture that we know will be against us, especially in a place like the Bay Area in San Jose, California? How can we be rightly motivated to be like the saints of old and faithfully discharge our duties as heralders of Christ? Um, the passage, I think, tells us exactly how. And so I want us to be motivated this morning. I want you to leave here motivated to proclaim Christ. And I want to I motivate you by showing you two things, three things from the passage. Number one, the empowered church. The empowered church. Number two, the shamed church. And number three, the honored church. The empowered church, the shamed church, and the honored church. And so if there is a theme for this sermon, it would be this. God's church, shamed by the world, but honored by the Father. God's church, shamed by the world, yes, but honored by God the Father. So let's take a look at point number one. Let's look at the empowered church of Jesus Christ. Verse three. John is hearing this voice from heaven. The voice says to him, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And you say, okay, we're already starting off here so cryptic, um, I need help. So the two witnesses, I believe the two witnesses, the two olive trees and the two lampstands, all are different names for the church. They're all identifying the church in a particular capacity. In other words, the people of God living between Jesus' ascension and his glorious return, that's the 1,260 days as we saw last week, that same period of time, we are given this responsibility. And each title tells, something, tells us something about the church in particular. Um, for example, the two witnesses, we know that two witnesses under the old covenant, under the law, were required to testify to something being true. And so here, God is affirming the testimony or the proclamation of the church. We're identified as two witnesses because we have the true testimony of Jesus Christ. 
And so hence, we are referred to as the two witnesses. And we are pictured here wearing what? Wearing sackcloth. Now sackcloth, if you don't know, it's a a very itchy material that was worn for various reasons. uh, One of which, primary reason, was mourning. In other words, the church, as we proclaim this, we are symbolically in sackcloth because we will be persecuted for the proclamation of this what? Of this truthful message. God says, this is my true message. You proclaim it, you will be persecuted for it. So the church is identified as the two witnesses. The church is identified as the two olive trees. And, that, uh, and this is really not disputed. This comes directly from Zechariah chapter 3 and chapter 4. And if you, if you remember that series, then you've been here a while. We did that some time ago. In Zechariah 3 and Zechariah 4, Joshua is identified as the high priest. And Zerubbabel is their local governor, their local king. And they're identified in Zechariah as two olive trees. And so we have a direct connection between the Old and the New Testament here. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 14, speaking of Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the local king, you are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And so certainly John is thinking of Zechariah 3 and Zechariah 4. You see, in the Old Testament, priests and kings, they were anointed with olive oil. They were anointed symbolically with what? With the Holy Spirit of God. And so... Um, The church, as you know, being identified as olive trees, we are called, what? God's priests and kings. We too have been anointed with the Holy Spirit. And we are to be priests of God, mediating between God and sinful man with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know from Genesis chapter 1 that our mandate is what? To be kings of the earth, to be vice regents of God, to oversee, to govern, and to bring blessings upon mankind. And so we see here clearly that the two witnesses and the two olive trees certainly are speaking of the church. And the last one's probably the simplest. It's the lampstand, right? There's a lampstand, two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now the lampstand is a common term used in the New Testament to describe the church of Jesus Christ. And certainly the representation of the Holy Spirit on the church of Jesus Christ as we saw with the seven churches um, earlier in the book of Revelation. The lampstands in the Old Testament um, and the priests and the kings, they were all incorporate the, the working of the Holy Spirit. And so what I don't want you to miss this. When Jesus said, you are the light of the world, he's speaking to the church as though we are lampstands, bringing the light of what? Of Jesus Christ to this dark world. But what's so amazing here, and I don't want us to miss it, is that in the Old Testament, both the priests and the kings, they were anointed with the Holy Spirit. And, and the lampstand in the temple was fueled by olive oil that represented the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, what is being revealed to John here, which I want you to get and be super encouraged by, is that the power of the church, the power of the two witnesses and the two olive trees and the two lampstands, all designating and speaking of the church, the power of the church to boldly proclaim this message comes from who? The Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Triune God, is the one, the person that enables us, that equips us, and that empowers the church to go out and proclaim this bitter, sweet, most difficult to hear message. To proclaim it faithfully. And for 2,000 years, the Holy Spirit has done just that, has he not? For 2,000 years, the Holy Spirit, through God's people, have faithfully proclaimed this most powerful message. Look at verse 5. 
And if anyone should harm them, speaking of the witnesses, the olive trees, the lampstands, I want you to think church. If anyone should harm them, the church, fire pours forth from their, their mouths, the church's mouths, and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. He's to be killed by fire. Now again, we're dealing with apocalyptic literature, so I want you to erase the picture in your mind of Christians breathing out fire like dragons and turning their enemies to ash. Did you do that? I mean, erase that, because that's not the picture here. We're not literally fire-breathing Christians who destroy our enemies by fire. That's just kind of weird. Not only is that weird, that is certainly contrary to Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5 when he said what? What are we supposed to do with our enemies? We're supposed to pray for enemies. We're supposed to love our enemies. We're not supposed to breathe out fire and turn our enemies to ash. It certainly would be a poor outreach strategy, would it not? Come to our church and we will destroy you by fire. Not a good message. It doesn't mean that. The fire that pours forth from the mouth of the Christian, listen, it's simple. It's the message that we're supposed to proclaim. It is the gospel message. You say, well, where are you getting that, pastor? Centuries earlier, this is what the Lord said to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 5.14, listen very closely. God said, I am making my words, God's message, in your mouth a fire, and this people who reject it would, and the fire shall what? The fire shall, it'll consume them. It'll consume them. So the message we proclaim is the fire that comes forth from our mouth. You say, wait, how is the gospel fire? Well, the gospel message, the full message of God, is twofold, is it not? It is salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And we proclaim that, and we call people to repent and believe and be saved. And at the same time, we say what? This is the true message of God. So if you reject this message, if you say no to Christ and no to salvation, then you will be condemned. You will be doomed by what? By fire. You'll be doomed by fire. The message proclaims that. You'll be doomed by the everlasting fires of eternal damnation. Look at verse 6. John writes, They, speaking again of the church, they, the church, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophecy. And immediately you think, oh, that's, that's Elijah. That's 1 Kings chapter 17. Remember, for three years he shut up the sky, except by his word, by his message. And then you read the latter part of verse 6, and they, speaking of the church, they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And you're immediately thrust back into Egypt with Pharaoh and with Moses, prescribing what? Prescribing the judgments that came upon a rebellious nation. And so again, just as we, we don't literally mean fire coming out of the Christian's mouth, we don't literally mean that the church has the power to turn water into blood or to shut up the sky for three years. It's not literal, it is symbolic, but its symbolism is really, really important. It means this, that upon our proclamation of this truthful message, some will be saved and others will be judged by it. They will be judged by it just as Elijah and Moses exercised judgment in their respective times. In other words, those who remain in rebellion against God after hearing the gospel message of Jesus Christ, what they can expect now, as we've already seen, and what they can expect eternally is God's wrath. It is His wrath. This, my beloved, 
If you didn't know what this meant before, I pray you do now. This is such an extraordinary teaching. It's extraordinary. It reveals that the church of God, listen very closely, the church of God, when faithfully proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ, the full message of Jesus Christ, is the most powerful entity with the most powerful message on earth. Do you believe that? The most powerful entity with the most powerful message on planet earth. More than any other governments or any other people or any other message. Look again with me at the passage. I just want to show you. Um, In verse 3, this voice from heaven tells John that the church has authority. In verse 4, the church stands before the Lord, speaking on behalf of the Lord and acting in the Lord's power. In verse 5, the church has power, fire coming from its mouth. And then twice... In verse 6, John says that the church has power to bring judgment through its message. In other words, this Holy Spirit proclaimed message of God is infinitely more powerful than you give it credit. Right? We don't preach it and we don't teach it. We don't think it has the impact. John is saying that's quite to the contrary. It is the most powerful message given to man. And that means, my beloved... That when the church goes silent with the gospel, when, when we change it or we cease to preach and teach the full message of God, salvation by grace and judgment by fire, that church, that Christian loses his power. They lose their power. We can no longer serve the world as the two witnesses bringing the truthful message of God to the lost if we don't proclaim the truthful message. We can't be the priests and kings that we've been called to be to mediate between God and sinful man with the gospel if we don't preach the gospel. To bring some form of restoration and healing through the gospel to the nations as kings. And we certainly, we cannot be the lampstand. We cannot let our light shine before men in such a way that they what? They see our good deeds, they hear the proclamation of the gospel, and they glorify our Father in heaven. We cannot be the lampstand if we are silent with the proclamation of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot. And so, all those, and I will say this in humility and love, all those so-called churches that have either modified the message or they've gone silent on the message, they've changed it to make it easier on the ears of the hearers because we don't want to offend. We don't want to put out And so we'll preach salvation, but not about judgment. We'll talk about grace and love, but not about justice, and not about wrath, and not about fire. And when you do, as a church or as a Christian, you are deemed as what? A fundamentalist, a radical evangelical, someone out of touch with Scripture. And yet that's exactly what Scripture teaches. For those churches that are more interested in attracting the masses, said I'm going to change the message or go silent on the message to bring people in. For those churches that have accommodated the progressive liberal agenda of the day, listen very carefully, they have become powerless. They've become powerless. A church or a Christian without the full gospel message is a powerless church and a powerless Christian. Empty vessels spewing out what? Nonsense. Nonsense. Do not be fooled by their numbers Do not be fooled by their elaborate, entertaining worship services. You cannot call it a worship service to God without the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
without proclaiming this radically powerful, Holy Spirit-filled message of God given to the church, that gathering, that Christian is not serving God. They are not serving their neighbor. They are not being the witness. They're not being the priest. They're not being the king. They're not being the lampstand. They're not being a church. They're not being the church. The church of Jesus Christ from our Lord's ascension until he comes again, the 1,260 symbolic days has been authorized and empowered by God to proclaim this message unashamedly and boldly in love to the world. That's our job. It should be our honor. Real divine authorization and real divine Holy Spirit power-filled message. So if you individually... You say, well, you've got to get personal now. If, if you individually have changed the message or you have gone silent, I say in love you are without excuse. You know better. I look at your faces and I know that you know better. My beloved, the body of Christ, we have the most powerful message to, to tell people about. You know that your faithful proclamation affects every single person who hears it. Every single time. You say, well, I, I share it. I don't see a response. Oh, but there is. Every single person who hears the faithful proclamation of the full gospel from your lips responds in one of two ways and is impacted in one of two ways. Either they hear it, they repent, and they believe, and they are saved, and they what? They become disciples of Jesus Christ, citizens in the kingdom of God, sons and daughter of the Father. It's either that or they hear it and they don't believe. In which case, what? Your words become words of judgment to them. Fire is coming forth from your mouth as you proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. And they receive it and they reject it and therefore they stand what? They stand condemned. They stand doomed both now and eternally. Their end is the lake of fire. And so every single time you open your beautiful God-given mouth to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has a real, eternal impact. Every time. Well, you see what I want to do? I want to highlight and magnify the power of this message so that you want to open your mouth. The question I have is this. If the message that we have is truly this powerful, if we can say truthfully, that it is empowered by the Holy Spirit and the most powerful message given to man. If that is true, it has the power to save and to judge, then why would any church or any Christian change the message or go silent on it? Why would we do that? Why would you alter such a magnificent, eternally powerful message? Why would we do that? Why would we not want everyone to hear this? Point number two, I pray you're still with me, the dishonored or the shamed church. The shamed church. So where verses 3, three through 6 speak to the authority and power given by God to the church to proclaim the full message of salvation and judgment, verses 7 through 10 describe the power and authority, listen, given, given to demonically influenced governments to persecute God's holy church. Look at verse, look at verse 7 with me. Verse 7, 
And when they, speaking of the two witnesses, which you are now hearing as the church, when they, the church, have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So the faithful church is out faithfully proclaiming the full message of salvation and judgment through Christ. And when the church does that, John tells us that judgment comes an opposition to the church, and it's, he's identified as the beast. Now, this is, this is the first mention of the beast. We're going to get to the beast again in Revelation 13 and in Revelation 17 with greater detail. But in John's context, it's, it's rather simple, and, and actually almost everybody agrees upon this. It is the Roman Empire. It is the government of Rome. So when you think the beast in John's time, it is the government of Rome. And that, that government has the power to persecute the church, which, of course, you know, even from the New Testament and certainly the early writings of the Apostolic Fathers, Rome did just that, severe persecution against Christians in the first and second century. But what John notes here is that Rome's not acting alone. From the bottomless pit comes this beast. In other words, we know that. Remember the bottomless pit? We talked about the abyss. We talked about last week. That is the, the, the realm of demonic activity. So it's not just Rome. It's Rome influenced by, affected by demons to compel Rome in John's time to persecute the church. And we can argue because we believe that the 1,260 days is the time between Christ's ascension and his return that governments have been used now for 2,000 years, used by demonic influence to bring persecution and hardship and suffering to God's people. And of course, we know that to be 100% historically accurate. In fact, you could say that's probably been one of the church's greatest enemies have been governments, not just people in opposition to the gospel. Now, this revelation of governments being demonically influenced should not surprise any of you if you made it through your, your sophomore year world history class. Right? Certainly, I mean, well, I guess I can't say that. Some of you, the 20th century was mostly your century, and now I guess it's the 21st century, so you can tell where I'm coming from. The 20th century alone, in the 20th century alone, when you think about governments that, that you would say there, there had to be more than just the flesh of man, when you think about the communist uh, takeover in, in 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution, and then you think of the years under the Soviet Union and the horrific atrocities to certainly uh, the church and to mankind. Or you think of Adolf Hitler's Third Reich or, or, or Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution or even Ho Chi Minh's. I love how they call it the Democratic Republic of North Vietnam. You would never call North Vietnam a Democratic Republic if you took a political science class. So we, we know about these atrocities. You know, there are estimates that, that since 1949, the Chinese Communist Party has executed over 77 million people. 77 million people with Christians in that number as well. So we should not be surprised at all that governments have oftentimes in history and in Scripture been public enemy number one of the church. We shouldn't be surprised by that, especially if they're influenced by demonic power. According to Open Doors, which we use in our prayer furnace to pray for people on their worldwide watch list, more than, listen to this, so this very day, 360 million Christians suffer high levels of persecution, discrimination, and death. 
360 million of your brothers and sisters as we sit in this beautiful room, in this, in this warm room, proclaiming Christ and worshiping God. 360 million Christians right now are under severe persecution throughout the world by governments. That's one, that's one in every seven Christians worldwide. That number's up. Last year it was one in eight. So that number has gone up significantly just in this past year. The top of the list, most of you probably know this, Kim Jong-un's North Korea, he's been at the top of the list for almost two decades now. Um, more than 50,000 of our brothers and sisters right now are in uh, prison and labor camps in North Korea. These are brothers and sisters that if they were here, they'd be joining us. They'd be worshiping with us and taking communion with us, but they are being persecuted by the government. The church has always been a suffering martyred church for 2,000 years and it will continue so don't be surprised it will continue until Christ comes again in glory to be a suffering martyred church and not only will many Christians suffer and be put to death by demonically influenced governments but even in their death we're told according to this passage that they will be shamed and dishonored look again at verse 8 and their dead bodies, the, the two witnesses, the church, the dead bodies of Christians will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically, don't you love this? John says, listen, don't take it literal. He even tells us symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt and their Lord, where their Lord was crucified. And so the great city is the city of man. It is the city of the world, those who reject Jesus Christ. And in that city you have what? You have the immorality of Sodom. You have the rebellion of Egypt. And you have Jerusalem, the city of God, where they what? Where they killed Jesus Christ. Where they murdered God's son. In other words, the rejection and death of our Lord in Jerusalem, it's emblematic of the world, of the great city of man, right? Those who say no to Christ and no to salvation and yes to sin and death. So those who reject and despise God and his son, they therefore, and we ought to expect, they will reject and despise the bride of the Son, those who follow Jesus Christ and believe this message to be true. And they will do it not only by persecuting and putting Christians to death in this life, but they will do it by shaming them in death. Look at verse 9. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations, you, know, you say, oh, I remember that, that's... That was last week. Those were the people that John was commissioned to prophecy against. Right? These are the people of the world. They will gaze at their dead bodies, the, the Christians' dead bodies, and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Now, you, you probably don't have to make a great cultural leap to understand to gaze upon a dead body fancifully, and we'll see here rejoicing in it, or to not bury a dead body then culturally and in many places today. And I would say even here was considered a great dishonor to the dead body, to the person that had died. Great shame and great dishonor. Certainly in the first century Mediterranean culture. Now that was a culture that was dominated by shame and honor. They were driven by it. Much more so than we are. So to be honored by the culture was the best thing that could happen to you. And to be shamed or dishonored by the culture was the worst thing that could happen to you. And so what we see here is those who occupied the great city, this, this city of man, a fallen man, they worked hard not only to discredit and to shame Christians in life, 
But they were working really hard to discredit and dishonor them in death as well. You say, well, why would they do that? They're already dead. Well, we know why. In a shame-honor culture, if you can dishonor someone in death, you can cause those who are still following Christ to say, you know what, maybe I not, might not follow Christ. Maybe I should stop pursuing Jesus. Because this is how they treat them in life and in death. And it's such a shame, then I should consider going back to my pagan gods and my pagan worship and stop this Christianity thing. I don't believe there's any greater historical example of the world, the great city of man, striving to dishonor Christians in life and death than that of John Wycliffe. For those of you who do not know John Wycliffe, he was the great 14th century pre-reformer, so prior to the Reformation. He was a, a philosopher and theologian at Oxford, really smart guy, and he was in England at the time, and, and he, believed, he believed that the word of God should be read by, by God's people in their native tongue. And so he started taking, he took the Latin Vulgate, which was the only authorized translation by the Catholic Church at that time, and he started to translate it into English because he believed that Christians should have access to the Bible, the Word of God, in their own tongue. You say, well, that, that, is, that sounds novel. It was not, not novel for us. It was novel then. This was the Catholic Church's response, the Roman Catholic Church. By this translation, speaking of Wycliffe's translation, the Scriptures have become vulgar, and they are more available to lay, and even to women who can read. Then they, were to, then they were to learn scholars who have a high intelligence. So the pearl of the gospel is scattered and trodden underfoot by swine because Christians had access to it in their own language. That was the response of the Roman Catholic Church. This was Wycliffe's reply. Englishmen learn Christ's law best in English. Moses heard God's law in his own tongue. So did Christ's apostles. Why not us. Why not us? Now, John Wycliffe, he died before the translation was complete. But his followers, known as the Law Lords, they completed the translation and they encouraged the English people who were, who were faithful followers of Christ to read the Bible in English. Well, this caused such a ruckus in the Catholic Church that 43 years after Wycliffe died, the church exhumed his body, and it was bones at that time. They burned his bones as a heretic, and they scattered his ashes. And they did so in order to what? To shame him in his death. To declare him a heretic and try to dissuade all those who were reading their scriptures in English to turn away from Christ and come back to the paganism of Roman Catholicism. They did it to shame them. And there was great joy by the world in the burning of Wycliffe's bones. Look at verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth, those are those who live in the great city, those who do not know Christ, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, over the persecution in life and humiliation and death, rejoice over them and make merry, listen to this, and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. They were very excited that Christians stopped preaching and stopped teaching this message. So much so that they rejoiced over it. When Jesus was speaking 
of his imminent crucifixion in John 16. Do you remember what he said to the disciples? John 16, 20, he said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament when he is crucified. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And so they did. And so they do when Christian churches and Christians who faithfully proclaim the message die too. Because we don't have to hear it anymore. Just as the world rejoiced at the persecution and death of the Savior, so too has the world rejoiced for 2,000 years when churches are silenced, when the gospel is quieted, or better yet, changed to be no gospel at all. And they rejoice, John tells us, because they hate the message. Look at the latter part of verse 10. Torment. The message is torment to those who dwell on the earth. The Apostle Paul said what? 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Our message is an aroma of death to those who are perishing and no one wants to smell death. No one wants to hear about it. They hate hearing that there is one true living God. They hate it. They hate hearing that there is one true living God expects all mankind to worship him and follow his laws. They hate it. They hate hearing that all their gods, all their idols are nothing but things made of man, not real, no power, unable to save. They hate hearing that. They hate hearing how God, apart from Christ, is going to judge them. They hate hearing this the most. They'll talk to you about God not being one or God not being powerful or their idols being real. But as soon as you talk about justice, as soon as you talk about justice for those who reject Jesus Christ, then the hatred reaches a whole new level. The world hates hearing that they will be punished for their just desert of sin and rebellion against their creator. They hate it. You see, my beloved, the world hates the church and hates the message of the church because fundamentally, and you know this, the world hates God. The world, apart from Jesus Christ, hates God. John 15, Jesus said this very clearly. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Listen to this. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. That's true, is it not? And it probably did before you came to Christ. But because you are not of the world, Jesus says, but I chose you out of the world, therefore what? Therefore the world hates you. And then he said this in verse 20. Listen with all your might. He said, remember the world, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they also will persecute you. So why did Jesus say remember this to the disciples and remember this to the church? Well, I believe, my beloved, there's something in our sin nature still that causes us to to blur the battle lines. We don't see clearly light and darkness, heaven and hell. We don't see it, and we easily forget, I think, who we are and the message that God has given us to proclaim, especially here in the West. We forget it. We forget that we're followers of Christ with a message from Christ to proclaim to the world. There's no confusion in China. There's no confusion in North Korea or Vietnam today. If you are a Christian, you are an enemy of the state. They know this, and Christians expect to be persecuted and expect to be imprisoned and expect to be put to death. But here in the West, even with the mild, ever so mild, and we must say that, even the mild persecution we faced, many Christians have foolishly concluded that we can, listen, be in the world and of the world. We've made a catastrophic mistake in the Western church. We have wrongly concluded 
that the Western world has made accommodations for our faith. They may not agree with us, Christians say, but at least they don't hate us, at least they don't want to silence us, and they don't want to kill us. Now, every American Christian ought to be exceedingly grateful for the religious liberties we enjoy still under the First Amendment. But we must not confuse our legal rights with the human heart. We must not confuse your religious liberties according to the Constitution of the United States and the human heart of those who dwell in the great city of man. Those who do not know Christ belong to that great city who hate Christ. And the only reason, now listen with all your might, the only reason that you're not hated by the world, that you're not being persecuted by the city of man right now, even here in the United States, it's not the First Amendment. It's because you or we collectively have changed the message or we've gone silent too. It's the only reason that we are not experiencing the same persecution that other people and other places are experiencing it. If your family, friends, and coworkers and neighbors, if they really knew what you believed, if they really knew the full gospel that you have received into your life, if you were faithfully saying no to sin and yes to testifying to the bittersweet message of God's word, do you think they would feel the same about you today? Do you think that they would treat you any differently if they truly knew what you really believed about salvation and judgment? What if, my beloved, what if, what if you stop bowing down to the idols in our cultural moment of of work and entertainment? What if you did that? What if you said, I'm not going to be a slave to my employer. I'm going to be a slave to righteousness in Christ. And, and what if you said, I'm going to stop filling my heart and mind with Amazon Prime, Netflix, and Disney Plus? What if you did just that? What if you, my beloved, what if you said no to those dialogues with friends and family that you know God hates? He said, I'm not having this dialogue anymore. I'm not engaging in the gossip. I'm not going to do the slander. God hates it. I hate it. I'm not going to say it. What if you said no to your coaches on the Lord's day? Saying, I will not practice and I will not play. It is the Lord's day. I'll see you on Monday. What if we did those things? What if you started speaking out in class as a student? When your teachers and your students jumped on that bandwagon of maligning your savior and maligning the gospel and maligning the church and you raised your hand in love and you said enough's enough. I need to speak on behalf of my savior. What if? What if my beloved instead of living as the rest of the world lives you separated yourself wisely in accordance with scripture. Being in the world but not of the world. Being in the world to be the priest and the king but not of the world living in sin and unrighteousness. What if, my beloved, do you think you would be treated kindly? Do you think you would be received as you are right now by family, friends, teachers, employers? Do you think your life would be any different? I don't think so. I think the world would see you, listen, as you truly are. They would see you as the church. They would see you as the two witnesses, as the two olive trees, as the lampstands, as a faithful heralder of the proclamation of Jesus Christ. They would see you, they would know you, they would hear you, and they would hate you. 
because they hate God. Persecuting you in this life, and if they could, as they did with John Wycliffe, exhuming your body and burning it for a man to see, to dishonor you even in death. My beloved, I believe the church in the West, and I say this with all humility and brokenness, I believe we are guilty. We don't proclaim the message as we should because we know in so doing we'll be shamed by the world, we'll be persecuted by the world, and we don't want that. So we change it, we modify it, or we just go silent and we're waiting for Christ to come again. I'm just gonna stay quiet until Jesus returns. You know that either of those responses, changing the message or going silent, not only is it displeasing to the Lord, it is sinful to the Lord. Jesus said, if you are ashamed of me before man, I will be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. We know that. And maybe even worse, my beloved, if you go silent, then the world must die. If you change the message or you do not proclaim the gospel, then the world around you must die. For how can they be saved unless they hear? And how can they hear unless there's a preacher? And how can the preacher go unless we are sent out? What if you knew the end of your story and you really believed it? What if you knew that the end of the story for you and for the church is not shame and dishonor, but it's being honored by God the Father? That the end is truly so extraordinary that it makes any persecution and suffering in this life seem minuscule? What if you knew that God was going to vindicate you in the end? Would it not embolden you now to proclaim the message? Would it not encourage you now, knowing what that end is for you in Christ, to go out today and tomorrow and for the rest of your days to preach and teach a crucified Christ? I think it would. So I want to encourage you with this last point, and I, and I pray I did not overwhelm you. I pray the Spirit is still leading you along. Point number three, the church honored by God. So we've seen the empowered church, we've seen the shamed church, and lastly, I want to show you the honored church. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, but after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, entered the church, entered God's people, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. So the three and a half days, that's this present age of evil, in the end, Christ comes, and what he sees, John tells us, is that God breathes the breath of life back into his people, the church. And what do they do? They stand on their feet, and you're like, oh, that's Ezekiel 37. I know that is. Right? Do you remember the prophecy of Ezekiel? God said to Ezekiel, you know, prophesy my word, speak my message, and Ezekiel did, and what did God do? The breath of life from the living God was breathed upon those dead bones in the valley of dry bones, and those people came back to life physically. Remember, what a great truth of the bodily resurrection of God's people being raised up here on that last day. All those who faithfully follow Christ, all those who faithfully proclaim Christ and suffer the consequences as a result, shamed by the world, persecuted by the world, but in the end, what? Vindicated by God. Physically, 
resurrected by God. Imagine all those who are watching, all those who put the Christians to death, seeing them come back to life. They said, oh, it didn't work. We killed them. We dishonored them in their death. And God still vindicated, and now they're alive again. Look at verse 12. And then they, God's people, heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, what? Come up here. (laughs) Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. So all the Christians, those who had died, are now made alive, physically resurrected from the dead. And the voice from heaven comes and says to all these now physically resurrected living Christians, come up here, come with me, says God. And they're carried up to God like Elijah in the Old Testament and like Jesus in the New. They're what? In the cloud of glory, in the glory cloud of the God Most High, brought up to be in the presence of God. And you say, well, I know, that's, that's one of my favorite parts of how the story ends, that that's my end. But do you notice what God was doing? God is vindicating his people publicly before all their enemies. They're raised from the dead and they're called up in the cloud of glory into heaven. And so John is revealing how God, listen, will honor the church, will honor you, vindicating your suffering, vindicating your death by proclaiming it before the world, before the city of man. Letting the city of man know, you shamed my church, but I bring them honor, and now I'm going to shame you with dishonor because you've rejected my son. They realize that the very people they persecuted and put to death, God vindicated and made alive. These were not stupid people. They get the conclusion. If they made God's people their enemies, they made God their enemy, and therefore God what? God is going to judge them. Look at verse 13. And at that hour, so the exact same time that the church is raised from the dead and ushered into the heavenly realm with God the Father, Son, and Spirit, at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God, the God of heaven. The second woe was passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. That's the seventh trumpet we'll look at next week. So the honoring of the two witnesses, God's people being received into God's presence is accompanied by judgment, an earthquake, global destruction, and death on a massive scale. Those that are not killed by the earthquake, they stand in fear and awe. It says that they give glory to God. And I don't believe, in, and, and most commentators, this does not mean that they're suddenly saved. It doesn't mean that. They know that they're being judged justly. They know what they did was hideous, and they're glorifying God in his justice, not his salvation. For those of you who remember King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, you remember when he was, he was made like a beast of the field and compelled to eat grass like an oxen? Remember that? Well, he came to his senses, and we are told that he said this, blessed is the most high, and he praised and honored God, but we know Nebuchadnezzar remained unsaved. My beloved, such a triumphant end for the church, the vindication and honor of God's people, and the eternal judgment and dishonor of God's enemies should cause us, I believe, 
your simple one takeaway. It should cause us individually and cause us as a church to be bold in the proclamation of this most powerful Holy Spirit message. Truly bold in our proclamation, regardless of the suffering and persecution it may bring, even here in the West, the mild persecution and the mild suffering we get right now, and it is mild, my beloved. The worst thing for you is what? A broken relationship, the loss of a job. Maybe, for now. My friends, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, faithfully proclaimed God's word his whole life, and as a result, he was persecuted, rejected, and dishonored by his own creation. Jesus Christ was the true high priest and the true eternal king, and he was what? He was hated by the Jews, and he was hated by the Romans, and so what did they do? They conspired together to shame him ultimately by nailing him to a cross. Jesus Christ, my friends, truly is the light of the world, but he, in bringing hope of eternal life to sinful man, the world as we know from John chapter one, hated him because the world loves the darkness more than it loves the light, and so they, they nailed him to a cross. Satan, the demons, the world, they did everything in their power to bring shame and dishonor to Christ, the faithful witness, the high priest, the eternal king, the light of the world. They did everything they could in both life and in death to humiliate him and to shame him, but God did not say, okay. God the Father instead honored his son by doing what? By raising him from the dead too. Like our two witnesses here in Revelation 11, Jesus, the son of God, was bodily raised and what did he do? He ascended in a cloud into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the glory of God the Father. In other words, God the Father honored God the Son for his faithfulness in life and death by raising him to eternal life by calling him to himself to have and to enjoy his presence and his glory, to reign as priest and king forever. And the glorious news of the gospel, which someone told you and you believed, is that's your end too. The exact same end. Bodily resurrection from the dead, brought into the presence of God, seated with Christ on the throne. For all who what? For all who put their faith and trust in the one who was dishonored on earth, but honored by God eternally in heaven, God the Son, Jesus Christ. And that means, my beloved, not only if you have faith in the Savior, not only are you set free from the fire, the eternal fire of God's judgment and wrath, but you can right now, during this 1,260-day period, you can right now faithfully proclaim Christ because Jesus Christ has faithfully secured your end. Your story is set in Jesus. There's no question about it. There may be questions how you get there, but in the end, your story is bodily resurrection from the dead, being honored by God the Father, being raised up with Christ, and seated with him upon the throne. That's it. You're not too excited about that, I guess. If that's true, then if that's true, that that's your end, then you can. Proclaim now the full message. You can tell people there's salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And you can tell people, reject Christ. And there is only wrath. There is only justice. There is only fire. 
you can say that. You can say that with all the fear that you, that you may have in those moments. You can be the faithful witness. You can be the priest. You can be the king. You can be the light that Christ has enabled you to be, even if it brings persecution and suffering and maybe even death because you know that your end is life with God. And, and the end changes everything, does it not? I mean, if that is our end, then the end of the story means that you can be dishonored now. You can be rejected now. You can be persecuted now because in the end, it's all God. It's you with God. Vindicated by God, honored by God. What an incentive. And what an incentive. I don't want to add to it. I want one incentive to hang upon your heart and mind this week that your end is so glorious and so magnificent because of Christ that you can preach and teach Christ now and be persecuted until you see him. You can keep your eyes focused on the honor that God the Father will pour out on you as you are dishonored and shamed and persecuted by all those that are around you. One author put it like this, I loved it. He said, those who keep their eyes on honor at the last day will thus be incentivized to witness boldly to their association with Jesus and the way of life that he taught. You remember Hebrews chapter 12, verse two. My dear sister prayed it this morning. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, what? He endured the cross. He despised its shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. My beloved, your story, how it ends, matters now. You may be shamed by family, friends, co-workers for speaking out now, but in the end, God the Father will honor you. Know this in your heart. Have your mind captivated by it, and you will, you will, you will loosen your tongue. You will speak boldly. You will say, I am going to be silent no more. I'm not going to change the message. I'm not going to sugarcoat the message. I'm going to tell everyone and anyone who will listen about Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. You will, you will. If you keep the end before you every moment of every day, you will say like Paul did what? These light and momentary afflictions are achieving for me a glory and honor that far outweighs them all. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I ask you would forgive us for our silence. Forgive us for changing the very clear, bittersweet message of the gospel. Forgive us for dishonoring your son. Forgive us for dishonoring the power of the spirit and the message that's been given. Forgive us, Lord, for not loving our neighbor. We are surrounded by a multitude, many of whom, Lord, here, right here in the Bay Area, who have never ever heard the gospel. Some have never heard the name Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, you would forgive us and in that forgiveness that you would empower us and you would embolden us by your spirit to be the true witnesses, to be the priests and kings you've called us to be, to be the lampstand that pours forth light from this beautiful little church into this community and state and around the world. I ask that you would do that, Father, that those around us may hear 
And we ask, Father, we do, we pray that when they hear it, they will repent and believe, and many will come to a saving grace. Do a great work here. Do a revival here, Father. And yet we know that you're the one who saves. So if you decree not to save, Lord, I pray that our mouths, from our mouths would come the true message of judgment and justice as well. Let us be truth tellers. Do that, Father, for your glory here in this place and in this church. I ask these things in Christ's most holy and precious name. Amen.